Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I am a person who has been enthralled by Frida tonight my entire life. She's always been in my life in the form of a cookbook. And then when I discovered how badly Black culture was treated in magazines, newspapers, early cookbooks, and how our recipes were co-opted in so many ways, for me, she was an empowerment to write about food. This is veteran food writer Donna Battle-Pierce talking about the woman who she says is one of the most important figures in American culinary history, Frida DeKnight. A leading home economist is Mrs. Frida DeKnight of Ebony Magazine. Her popular articles on food and home furnishings and her book, A Date with a Dish, have won international honor. Frida DeKnight was the first food editor at Ebony Magazine back when the iconic publication was first getting started in the mid-1940s. I grew up seeing it on the coffee table everywhere, every Black person, because it was the first correct representation of a culture that had been so severely misrepresented before. Frida's national recipe column, A Date with a Dish, helped revolutionize Black culinary coverage in post-World War II America. She published thousands of recipes and articles during her career, but... Unlike her famous contemporaries, Julia Child and James Beard, Frida wrote just one cookbook. An instant bestseller, A Date with a Dish, the book, was first published in 1948, and it's considered to be the first major cookbook by a Black American author in the United States. It's over 450 pages long, filled with hundreds of recipes, from scrambled eggs to filet mignon, pineapple duck, and crab jambalaya. There were recipes that you did not find in other cookbooks that were totally the way my grandmother, our grandmothers, the generations before us cooked. There were some potato salads, and then there were gumbos with tomato because there was that challenge of, do gumbos really have tomatoes? And then, of course, one that I loved the most, fruitcake. Frida absolutely loved fruitcake. Donna says that a date with a dish is so much more than a cookbook or a magazine column. In her search for recipes, Frida traveled to homes all over the country, collecting stories and dishes from Black chefs and home cooks, from Louisiana to California. Every single story is remarkable. And it's like having a family member because these are people who represented the aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins that all of us in the Black middle class knew and grew up with, whose voices had been silenced. Before Frida DeKnight, publications that centered Black cuisine were overwhelmingly written by white writers for white audiences, often using harmful caricatures like Uncle Ben or Aunt Jemima. 
So Frida wasn't just changing the culinary conversation. She was speaking an entirely different language. These are recipes that came from Black families, Black family cooks, proud Black middle class that were all over the country that were never shown in, quote, mainstream media, that was never available in other magazines or newspapers or even early television. These recipes weren't written for white people to say, oh, I'm going to try some of that chicken. These were recipes written by us, for us. Everything we eat has a story to tell. Welcome to If This Food Could Talk, a history show for everyone who eats. I'm Claudia Hanna. Today on the show, we are telling the story of culinary trailblazer, Frida DeKnight. With Donna's help, we'll discover how Frida's work helped change the culinary narrative for an entire generation of Black chefs and home cooks. We'll follow her journey from Topeka, Kansas, all the way to the largest Black publishing company in the United States. And we'll hear some of the voices and recipes she championed along the way. I'll also try my hand at cooking one of Frida's recipes, barbecued spare ribs. All that coming right up. Today, we're speaking with food writer Donna Battle Pierce about her culinary hero, Frida DeKnight, the first food editor at Ebony Magazine. In recent years, Donna has been writing a book all about Frida and her work. But Frida has been a part of Donna's life for as long as she can remember. It was Frida who inspired Donna to pursue a career in food writing almost 30 years ago. And it's Frida's recipes that she hands down to her grandnieces and nephews. When our producer, Carriette Harmon, spoke to Donna from her home in Santa Monica, it was very clear. Frida isn't just a research subject. She's family. I have collected a lifetime of cookbooks and a lifetime of Black history. So I am surrounded by bookshelves and people who inspire me. I have a family tree that's very important to me. I have a photograph of my father my mother, and then I have a picture of Frida. I feel Frida's presence in my office, in my kitchen, in my life, all of the time. Before Donna spoke to us about Frida's column and cookbook, she wanted us to understand the void that Frida was filling in the culture, a void that Donna felt herself growing up in the early 50s, just a few years after a date with a dish, the cookbook was published. Some of her earliest memories are helping her family in the kitchen, making Frida's recipes. My grandmothers did not have collections of cookbooks. They had Frida, both of them. Donna comes from a long line of talented home cooks. And she learned many of Frida's dishes by heart, along with family recipes like pound cake, oyster loaves, and jambalaya. These meals were a proud part of Donna's heritage. But as early as middle school, she began to realize that her white friends disapproved of the food at her table. For my 13th birthday, my mother made gumbo, our family recipe, Creole soul, I call it. I was able to invite from my integrated school about six or seven of my friends. Two of the girls turned to me and said, oh, this gumbo has spice in it. You know, real ladies don't eat spicy food. That was such a negative comment 
to me culturally, as if my family were not made of real ladies. But these were white girls. They were sincerely saying something that they had been told from their grandmothers and relatives and from television and from books and from so much that was slanted. And they believed it. I was a little 13-year-old girl, and that stuck with me all of my life. It's painful memories like these that make Frida such an important figure in Donna's life. At a time when there were so few Black voices in the culinary conversation, Frida recognized the contributions of people just like Donna and her family. And she put them in the pages of a magazine for everyone to see. I think it's important, very important, for white people to understand what the environment was that people like my siblings and myself grew up in, or people like my parents raised children in. There was blatant racism everywhere. People had been taught not to see Black people as intelligent in having had grandparents that went to college or great-grandparents. And so for us, we as young Black people, we knew the intelligent, beautiful, wonderful people that were out in our world and the wonderful letters and the photographs and the family reunions and the dinner parties. And white people, they saw what was revealed to them for a purpose, and that was for keeping segregation going. In the early days, most of what Donna knew about Frida came from her grandparents, who would not allow any other cookbook on their kitchen shelves. But as she got older and cracked open the pages for herself, a picture of Frida's work began to emerge, one that would influence the course of her life. Do you happen to have the book in front of you by any chance? Sure. I had written some down that were important to me. That's my producer, Cariad, speaking with Donna, who's leafing through her grandmother's copy of the original 1948 edition of A Date with a Dish. Inside, there are chapter titles like There's Magic in a Cookbook, A Guide for the Housewife, and my personal favorite, Vegetables on Parade. But the section that Donna wants to read from is called Collector's Corner, an entire chapter of the book dedicated to the stories of chefs and home cooks from every part of the country. Every single story in the collector's corner, to me, is remarkable because these are people who represented the aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins that all of us in the Black middle class knew, whose voices had been silenced. The chapter is almost 80 pages long, and it's jam-packed with real examples of Black family life from South Dakota to Texas. New York City to South Carolina. St. Paul was a shock to me because there was such a wonderful, thriving Black community in St. Paul, Minnesota. I had no idea. I had not learned about that growing up. Here's Miriam Abramson-Perez, 
who was born in the West Indies and cooked for English aristocracy. And then we go to New Orleans, where every cook in every nook knows about New Orleans. Lucille Smith in Texas, who has her own cooking program on the radio. Arkansas is famous for good cooks and barbecue. There's a father and son, owners of the Waters Catering Company in Baltimore. Here's another one. Mary Gaines, a rural school teacher, showed me how food was canned, making use of every conceivable edible meat and vegetable. You know, what this is, is this is history that we're not getting anywhere else, and Frida is supplying it to us in her cookbook. Even years after a date with a dish was published, Donna was astonished to see how many Black middle-class families, just like hers, were living all over America. We had not been portrayed in that way. This was telling the truth that had never been told in the media. Donna says this early introduction to Frida's work is what inspired her to become a food writer herself. And all these years later, it's Frida's story she wants to tell. Her research began in Frida's hometown of Topeka, Kansas. But as it turns out, Frida was born to travel. It was said she was born on the train. Her mother was a traveling nurse, and that was a very wonderful career for a woman. Her father was a porter, a sleeping car porter. And that was a wonderful opportunity for Black men to travel around the country and to learn, to see, to bring things back, and to earn a very decent salary. So Frida was born into that family. If Frida and her family had stayed in Kansas, it's hard to say if she would have become a food writer at all. But very soon, fate would intervene, and the direction of her life would change forever. When she was just two years old, her father died, and Frida's mother was forced to move them both to Mitchell, South Dakota, to live with her brother Paul and his wife Mamie. They were very, very successful caterers, and Mitchell was a very white community. They lived on a farm. They raised their food. They introduced to a lot of people that had never eaten it or appreciated that little dash of delicious seasoning. And then Mamie, Paul's wife, taught Frida cooking. Frida's path to Ebony Magazine began in her aunt's kitchen, who she later said was among the finest caterers in the country. In fact, Mamie Scott's recipe for an inexpensive dinner is the very first one in Frida's cookbook. There's a meatloaf, a beet and onion salad, cauliflower bechamel sauce, and marble cupcakes. And Donna says that it's likely Frida was learning a whole lot more than cooking on that farm in South Dakota. The truth of the matter is that Paul Scott, her mother's brother, was much, much more than a caterer. He was a political activist. According to Donna, it's Paul who instilled a sense of activism in Frida that would later show up in her work. She didn't just create a cookbook. She was providing visibility to an entire community of Black Americans. In college, Frida studied home economics, and though she certainly loved food, there's no indication she was planning a career in the culinary arts. She spent some time in Minnesota and Chicago, and then in the late 1920s, she moved to Harlem. This would have been right in the middle of the Harlem Renaissance, an explosion of Black creativity and culture in Upper Manhattan. This time in New York marked such an important turning point in Frida's life that Donna went to visit Frida's apartment just to soak it all in. I stood outside just to feel the vibe. 
and where she was and how it was located close to the libraries and close to museums. I wanted to feel how she felt and how it all fit together. And I'm still putting the puzzle pieces together with help from others. It was here in Harlem that Frida met her future husband, musician Renee DeKnight, and they got married just as his career was taking off. His group, the Delta Rhythm Boys, recorded with big stars like Ella Fitzgerald and Fred Astaire. They performed on Broadway, got a weekly spot on the radio, and they were even on the big screen. Frida would have been rubbing shoulders with some of the biggest names in Black entertainment. And soon, she would be given the opportunity of a lifetime. But it never would have happened without a dinner party, a sickly chef, and a chance meeting with a visionary businessman named John Johnson, creator of Ebony Magazine. More after the break. John Johnson launched Ebony Magazine in 1945, just a few months after the end of World War II. The civil rights movement as we know it today was still almost 10 years away, but his business, the Johnson Publishing Company, was already moving the needle. John H. Johnson came along and said, I want to be able to focus on my culture, and I want to be able to show the things that all of us know in the culture, and yet I want it available to everyone. The magazine was the first national publication of its kind, created by a Black publishing company specifically for a Black audience. They featured Black writers, musicians, and political figures of all kinds, and it was an immediate hit, selling out its original press run of 25,000 copies. I grew up seeing it on the coffee table, everywhere, every Black person, because it was the first correct representation of a culture that had been so severely misrepresented before. John Johnson and Ebony Magazine would change the course of Frida DeKnight's life forever. But when they met, she wasn't looking for a job. In fact, she wasn't thinking about work at all. She had simply accepted an invitation to a dinner party in Chicago. It was a gathering of intellectuals and creative types. But soon before the party, Frida got a frantic call from her hosts. The chef had taken ill, and the evening was going to be ruined. And Frida said, oh, I can handle this. She was one of those people, as those of us who are food lovers would say, oh, I can put that together. What do you have here? She created these wonderful dishes that she knew, having grown up in South Dakota and in Minneapolis with family that were wonderful chefs. She created this wonderful meal. John Johnson, who was also at the party, was so impressed by Frida's cooking that he asked her to send him the recipes. And what she sent him was just like what the date with the dish columns turned out to be. It was beautifully done, beautiful recipes, beautiful storytelling, and he knew that he wanted that for his magazine. We don't know what dishes Frida made that left such an impression on Johnson, but leafing through the pages of her cookbook, I'm imagining perhaps it was East Indian chicken or pork tenderloin with sweet and sour beets, maybe polished off with her famous rose petal ice cream. Whatever it was she cooked, it was certainly delicious. Because Johnson immediately offered Frida a position at the only national black magazine in the country. And in 1946, she took a job she had never applied for, moved to Chicago, 
and became Ebony Magazine's first food editor. Her column was very fashionable. It was usually in the back of Ebony Magazine. And she interviewed celebrities, and she also interviewed home cooks. As soon as Frida started her career at Ebony, she also began inventing a new editorial approach to recipe making. Instead of simply listing the ingredients and cooking times, Frida's style was entertaining. There were photographs and stories connected to the food, and she used all of her Harlem connections to pull in some big names. People like Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and one of the most glamorous actresses of her day, Lena Horne, who, as Frida put it, likes her dishes to be as interesting as her songs and clothes. And spicy. Frida was making it very clear. Real ladies and movie stars do love spicy food. And over the years, she had no shortage of star power in her column to prove it. She knew them from her travels. She knew them from Europe. She knew them from all that she had done, just as the upper middle class knew each other, from fraternities, sororities, travels, clubs. And she traveled around the country, and she looked up people, and people were thrilled to be a part of what she was doing. As Ebony's circulation grew, so did the success of Frida's column. Her food writing was changing the way Black chefs were presented to the public. Yes, there were regional American dishes like collard greens and mac and cheese, but she also printed French, Italian, and Caribbean recipes. After centuries of stereotyping and pigeonholing, Frida was showcasing the sophisticated reality of Black culinary excellence. A year later, the magazine published an editorial titled Goodbye Mammy, Hello Mom. This was Goodbye Mammy, and that was the Mammy character that had been representing the Black cook, Aunt Jemima. Hi, try this tasty pancake. Oh, yes, Uncle Ben. Goodbye to that representation that we knew all along was just something that was used by privileged whites to keep things to themselves and not to recognize the contributions of Black people. According to that Ebony article, World War II had created a sea change in the lives of Black American families. Just like Rosie the Riveter, over six million women had stepped into the workforce for the first time, taking wartime jobs in munition factories and hospitals. And for many Black women, that meant leaving domestic work in white households. Now that the war was over, there was no going back. A culinary revolution was coming to Black kitchens across the country. And Frida was at the forefront. I think that was absolutely the exciting part of it for her. To be able for once and at the beginning to show the beauty and the dishes that we created. And we didn't create them for white tables, but we created them for our families and our celebrations and our culture. After two years at Ebony, Frida wrote a cookbook named after the column she created. In 1948, she published A Date with a Dish, a cookbook of American Negro recipes. Though the book would be republished by Ebony several years later as The Ebony Cookbook, this first edition was released independently, exactly as Frida intended. In the very first chapter, she made her mission quite clear, writing, quote, 
There has long been a need for a non-regional cookbook that would contain recipes, menus, and cooking hints from and by Negroes all over America. Read each paragraph, story, and recipe as you would a novel. Then you will know and enjoy to the fullest the meaning of culinary art. For her, the time had come. She had enough strength and enough power. She was in charge. She wanted the cookbook to come out, and she wanted people like me, two generations later, to still be cooking from it and still be enjoying the stories that are there and treasuring how she had put us where we should have been for a long time. And it will be around forever, thanks to the Library of Congress. The book has been officially recognized as a significant contribution to America's history, and a copy has been added to the archives. You can even find a digitized version of the original publication online. That's where I found a date with a dish, and I have absolutely loved exploring it. Honestly, it's been hard to choose just one recipe to try, but I've landed on Ebony's barbecued spare ribs with a homemade barbecue sauce. I'm a sucker for good barbecue, and I rarely make it at home. The first thing I noticed was that Frida's writing style is so easy and transparent. As I mentioned, Frida shares stories and anecdotes about people from across the country in the book. So you feel like you're having dinner with them, not just trying out a recipe. And let me tell you, my family loved the homemade ribs. And I did actually make this meal for you. I like the ribs. That brings us to the end of season one. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for joining us on this journey. Each of you made our season memorable, delightful, and delicious. From my kitchen to yours, Tisla Madik, friends. Bless your hands. Thank you. Congratulations. Thanks for listening to If This Food Could Talk with me, Claudia Hanna. If you want to support us, you can follow If This Food Could Talk on your favorite podcast listening app. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps. You can also get updates on bonus content by following me and American Public Television on Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook. You can find more information on all of our guests this season on each episode's show notes. Production by Carriot Harmon, Reva Goldberg, Tanner Robbins, Jacob Lewis, Claudia Hanna, Nate Toby, John Barth, and the team at Great Feeling Studios. Editing by Yasmin Khan. Sound design by Carriot Harmon and Jason Sheasley. Associate producer, Kate Hayes. If This Food Could Talk is based on an original concept by Claudia Hanna. Executive producers for APT Podcast Studios are Jim Dunford, Cynthia Fenneman, and Sean Halford. Legal by Cody Brown. Special thanks to the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU. American Public Television is the leading syndicator of high-quality, top-rated programming to American public television stations. You can learn more at aptonline.org.